Thanks very much to the guys for the music and for the girls that they're singing too. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of the Acts. Acts chapter 15, we're going to read from verse 39 and all the way down to verse 10 of Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 15 and verse 39, the Bible says that there arose a sharp disagreement, and that would be between Paul and Barnabas, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. The disciples there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, again we stand here this morning with the Word of God open before us. And Father, we would again place ourselves in submission to it and to you. And Father, we ask that you would speak to us, each one of us. Help us, O God, to understand and know your word, to walk and live in obedience to it, to honor and glorify you through all that we do. And we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why did the Holy Spirit inspire Luke to record these three short linked stories? What's the message that God graciously provides through these little vignettes to grow us in Christ-likeness? In chapter 15, verses 40 to 41, Paul chooses Silas and continues in the work of the Lord that he had been given to do. In chapter 16, verses 1 to 4, Paul circumcises Timothy and brings him into the work. And in chapter 16, verses 6 through 10, Paul follows the Holy Spirit's leading. Three stories with three important decisions that Paul had to make and act on. In each story, the basis for Paul's decision gives us an important principle for how we must approach and make decisions in our Christian lives and ministries. 
So the title of the message this morning is simply Making Godly Decisions in the Christian Life and Ministry. How do most people make decisions in the course of their life? We decide perhaps for what's pragmatic, what practically works regardless of morality or ideology. Our world offers or decides for what offers the greatest financial concern or return. What's the cheapest option? What's the most comfortable option? What would my friends or my family or my parents do in just such a situation? What will look good on my social media pages? You know, we, we do something and then we quickly get a selfie of it to make sure we can post it on our social media and everybody can see what we're doing right down to the breakfast we ate at McDonald's, which is just crazy. What will look good on my social media pages? What does society think is the best thing for me to do? That's probably the most dangerous parameter to make a decision. But how do we, as Christians, living in an option-rich world, make the necessary decisions required in following our Lord Jesus Christ? We have multitudes of decisions to make, and they must honor the Lord and His Word and flow from the right motive and serve to increase our faith in God and our repentance of sin and further the gospel and glorify God above all else. So how do we make godly decisions in the Christian life and ministry? So what I want to do this morning is I want us to see from Paul's example three things. Number one, decision-making in submission to Christ. Secondly, decision-making in love for others. And thirdly, decision-making in obedience to the Spirit's Word. So first of all, making decisions in submission to Christ. Notice the story and the second, or partway through verse 39, down to 41, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So give you a kind of step back from that text. And I want to give you a kind of a recap of Paul's experience, his life in journeying with the Lord up until this point. In Acts chapter 9, verses 4 to 6, Christ intervened in Paul's persecuting the church and revealed himself to Paul as the Lord whom he was persecuting. In Acts 9, verse 15, Ananias is told that Saul is God's chosen vessel to carry Christ's name before Gentiles and kings and the Jews, and that he must suffer much for the sake of Christ. And I have no doubt in my mind, as Ananias went to, uh, to Saul, Paul, and ministered to him there, he communicated those things that he had heard from the Lord. In Acts 11 and 12, Barnabas and Saul, Paul, served the Lord, teaching and leading the Antioch church. In Acts 13, the Holy Spirit speaks to the Antioch church as a whole and calls them to separate Barnabas and Saul to the work that he has called them to. So not only is Saul Paul chosen by God to serve as a suffering apostle, but notice how Paul refers to himself. If you read any of Paul's letters, he will start off with something like this. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, or in the Greek, Paul, a doulos, a slave or bond slave of Christ. He's called to be, by God's will, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And similar sayings all through his, his letters. Paul reflects that calling, his understanding of who he is in relationship 
to the Lord Jesus. Barnabas and Paul have begun their ministry serving together for a few years, but now Barnabas has taken Mark and sailed away to Cyprus without Paul. And every time I, I think about this story, I can just see Stahl, sorry, Paul standing there on the dock, and the boat to Cyprus is moving away, and there's a wake fading, and he's just kind of standing there looking after it. No wonder what went through his mind. I can think about what might have gone through my mind. What now? Is it all over before it's hardly begun? Should Paul return to the churches he planted or not? Should he pack up his tools and return to Tarsus to make tents? Should someone else accompany him? Who would it be? Where will he and his companion go? There are no doubt some of the questions that we might ask at that particular moment. For many of us, the events of Barnabas' dispute and leaving would have raised a great deal of questions if, it was, if I was in his shoes about the future, about ministry. I think we would have been tempted perhaps to give it all up, to go home to Tarsus and go back to making tents. That was a pretty serious moment in both their lives. But in our text, we're simply given the decisions Paul made in a very short, to-the-point manner. He chose Silas to go with him on his further journey. They were commended to the grace of God by the brothers. They departed from Antioch and they went through Cilicia and strengthening the churches. So did Paul wrestle with what to do? Did he agonize over what his next step might be? And my answer is no, I don't think he did at all. And I know what some of you are thinking. So what, your sermon point is based on nothing? No, it's not. It's based on looking at the bigger picture of Paul's whole life, his ministry, and a decision he had to make. Paul knew what his missionary calling by God was. He knew what he must do, and so he got busy doing it. And while the Holy Spirit is not specifically mentioned in this account, I am absolutely certain that he was involved in leading Paul to continue his work. So what then can we learn from Paul's example and actions? Stepping back, keeping this in perspective, if we take the Lord's words in Acts 9 regarding Paul's calling and the extent of his ministry, which I'm convinced he heard and remembered, if we take the Spirit's words in Acts 13, separating them to the work, And if we take Paul's own words regarding himself and his ministry, I believe there is indeed a very important lesson for us to be reminded of when it comes to our making our decisions in the course of this Christian life and ministry. Listen, every decision you and I make must be made in the context of our submission to our Lord Jesus Christ as his disciples. From reading his letters and studying Acts, I'm certain that Paul had no doubts whatsoever as to who he was and to whom he belonged. He was in full submission to Christ. Time out for a sec. Sometimes we get so familiar with the text of Scripture, we read the words and somehow we lose sight of what they really mean. When he said, I'm a bond slave of Christ... It wasn't a cool idea that he could put on a shirt or a nice bumper sticker to put on the back of his donkey, I guess. It it was something real for him. When he said, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, it wasn't just the opening to a letter. 
Dear John, Apostle of you know, he didn't do that. Those words, those concepts meant something deeply to Paul. How do you know, you say? Look at the extent he goes in his ministry. I've been reading through the later part of Acts. He goes all the way. He knew what was coming. He knew a violent death awaited him. He knew by revelation of God that he was going to be persecuted and punished and tortured and eventually beheaded for his faith. And yet he carried on. Because to him, an apostle, a slave, a servant of God meant more than just a cool word. It had deep and profound meaning. He was in full submission to Christ. That's what doulos means. He was an apostle of Christ Jesus. He mentions it frequently. He was a slave or a bond servant or a bond slave of Christ. He belonged to Christ. He was not his own, nor was he free to do whatever he desired and liked. Paul was one whose will was entirely submitted to his master's will. And brothers and sisters in Christ, is that how we regard ourselves? I would argue, in our Western democratic culture, we have fallen in love with the idea of freedom so much that when we read words like disciple and servant and slave, we have an entirely different idea than what they really mean. Brothers and sisters in Christ, is that you and how you and I regard ourselves as servants of Christ as slaves of Christ, as slaves of righteousness. That must be how we regard ourselves. Listen and consider what the Scriptures say. Paul writes about us all in Romans 6, verse 18, and says, And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Romans 6, Paul continues, But now that you have been set free from sin, you have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Brothers and sisters, you and I were bought at the same infinitely high price as Paul was with Christ's own precious blood. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Paul writes, Do you not know? that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, are not our own. Every believer belongs to Christ, and we glorify Christ by making decisions in obedience to Christ as servants and slaves and disciples of Jesus Christ. Paul was an apostle and a follower of Christ, one of only 12. But we are all, every single one of us in this room who knows and loves Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord, we are all disciples and we're all followers of Christ. We're slaves or bond slaves of Christ and slaves of righteousness. As soon as I say that, I can anticipate some objections coming up in your minds. Number one, aren't we sons and daughters? Doesn't the Bible say that I'm a slave, servant? Hey, hang on a second. The Bible says that we are sons and daughters, right? You can all nod. It's right. It does say that. Yes, we are. We are both children of God and servants of God. We serve our Heavenly Father in the unbreakable, eternal relationship of adoption as His children. And we serve as Christ, the Son of God, served His Father. 
He has a relationship of far deeper and far greater value than ours. And he could say, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We serve as Christ, the Son of God, served, who came as a suffering servant, who gave his life as a ransom to save us so we could be adopted by God into his family. So, yes, we are both children and servants of God. Second objection is this. I can hear it rising up. It came up in my own mind. Paul was called to be a full-time minister, Nelson, but I'm not. I'm a lawyer. I'm a doctor. I'm a carpenter. I'm a homemaker. It's different for me than it was for Paul. But is it? Beloved, I got some really good and really exciting news. You ready for this? This is great. It's a good thing you're all sitting down. This is going to hit you. You ready? Every one of us are called to be full-time servants for God, bar none. To serve the Lord as fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, tradies, business people, professionals, retirees, in whatever job or role Christ has placed us, there we serve as His servants and slaves and disciples and children to honor and glorify Christ above all else. So every decision that you and I make is to be made, first of all, in the knowledge and understanding of our relationship to Christ and our submission to Him in continual consideration of God's callings on us. Beloved, we're not like the world. And if we are like the world, there's something terribly wrong with us. We're not like the world. We don't live in the same freedom to serve self above all else that the world does. But tragically, so many of us, and I mean us, literally, make decisions based on the idea that we're just like the world. We can choose just like they do. No. Paul's standing there on the dock watching the boat sail away. What's he going to do next? He already knew the call of God in his life. He already knew what God had given him to do. He knew there were churches that need strengthening. So his simple reaction, his simple response in submission to Christ as Lord was to get up, look around. Who can he take with him? He got the commendation of grace from the brothers in the church there, and he went off and carried on. He made his decision in submission to God. Beloved, remember the callings that God's placed on us all. God has called us all to a whole life of faith in Christ. Don't buy into the idea that we're saved by faith. That's a moment of faith and we can live however we like after that because we're going to heaven anyway, so what does it matter? That is not the biblical teaching of Christianity at all. It's a whole life of faith. It's a life of ongoing repentance. It's a life of holiness that we have been called to. It's a life we're called to pursue sanctification, to put off the old man and put on Christ. How much simpler would our decisions be if we asked, which of these options in this decision is consistent with a life of faith and which not? which is consistent with repentance of sin and holiness, which is consistent with being Christ's disciple and servants of God. Imagine every decision we made, instead of being, what's the price tag? Can I afford it? Will it look good? Is it what everybody else is doing? If it came down to, will this decision further my faith in Christ and my repentance of sin? Will this decision honor and glorify God as my master, my savior, my Lord, or not? 
We make godly decisions in submission to Christ. But notice something else here. It says that they had been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. The phrase by the brothers, I think, is kind of a euphemism, meaning the church leadership. That's typically who it would be. Paul, the called, commissioned, separated apostle, left Antioch with the brothers' commendation to God's grace. If you remember back when he and Barnabas left on their first missionary journey, the church laid hands on them and sent them off. The Spirit of God said to the church, separate those two to me. He dealt through the church with those two men. And so when Paul and and Silas now are going to go away again, I'm absolutely convinced that they went to the church leadership and sought their advice and counsel and input and went with their blessing and their commendation into the grace of God back to the work. What's the point? We make godly decisions in submission to Christ and we seek the counsel of a church leadership places church leadership into our lives to do more than simply pick the hymns and count the money. We're here for advice and prayer and counsel, an ear to listen, a shoulder to cry on. And believe it or not, brothers and sisters, if there's something going on, the first thing that happens is I pick up my little black horrible thing and I send off a text, proven a Wes. Such and such has happened. What do you think? Advice? What do you reckon? And they shoot back to me, usually within minutes. I'm constantly seeking their advice. And Paul obviously sought out the brothers' counsel and commendation which he received from them as they went back to the work. So from the text and other texts and Acts and Paul's epistles, we can see that he made decisions knowing he was Christ's servant and apostle to continue Christ's work. And so he chose Silas. He received the commendation. He returned to those church plants and was used by God to strengthen the churches. Notice secondly, second story. From this, we want to see the lesson that we make decisions in love for others. Notice the situation again in Acts 15, verse 41. He went through Syria and Cilicia, and he came to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Timothy was well spoken of, had a Jewess mother and a Gentile father. While his race and nationality were derived from his mother, it was his father's right and privilege to circumcise sons. And Paul wanted to take this young man with him in the work. And Paul's standard procedure, as we already saw in the earlier chapters, is to first go into a Jewish synagogue and present the gospel to them, to the Jew first, and also the Greek, he says in Romans 1. But the problem is, Timothy's lack of circumcision as a Jew would cause great problems for them in terms of being accepted and gaining a hearing by the Jews for the gospel. To compound this, Paul is carrying a letter that makes it clear that circumcision is not necessary for salvation for Gentiles. If he were to require Timmy's circumcision, he would be accused, or he could be accused, of being double-minded and kind of unstable. If he were to disregard Timothy's uncircumcised state, it could cause trouble and place unnecessary barriers and hindrances to the gospel being heard by the Jews. Not only that... But continuing with Timothy uncircumcised would have added fuel to the fire 
of the charge made against him by the end of his life that he was going around teaching Jews to forsake the law and not to circumcise sons. But Paul wanted to bring Timothy. No doubt he believed it was of the Lord. So Paul had to make a decision. What's he going to do? Paul knows the gospel of God's grace. Paul knows circumcision is unnecessary for anyone's salvation. And Timothy is already a believer. Circumcision holds no value for him whatsoever. Timothy is not depending on it to find favor with God. And what Paul does is an amazing act of love for God, for Timothy, and for the Jews. I discovered in my study this week that this is very interesting. Uh, Jew, Jews, uh, sorry, Jews calculate the lineage to the mother. So if mother was a Jew, the boy was a Jew. But it was a father's responsibility and right and privilege to take that son and circumcise him as a son of the covenant. And what Paul does is he acts as an adoptive Jewish father taking responsibility to circumcise his adopted son, Timothy. What's Paul call him later on in his letters? My son in the faith, right? It's actually a, a very beautiful picture. We're sitting over there, uh, standing, not sitting over there by uh, where Godwin is yesterday morning, Peter and I. And it suddenly occurred to me, you know what? What Paul has done here in adopting Timothy and circumcising him as his son in the faith is actually a beautiful picture of God's gospel work done in every one of us. God, our Heavenly Father, has taken all whom He has chosen to believe in Christ, as it says in Ephesians 1.4 and Romans 8.29 and 1 Peter 1, verse 3. And He has circumcised us, not physically, but spiritually, as Paul describes in Colossians 2.11 and Romans 2.29, which is to say He's cut away our sinful, stony heart, and removed it from us, and He's given to each of us a new heart of flesh, and He's put within us His Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 11, 19 and 20, and 36 and 26, talk about that as promise of God to the people of Israel. But not only that, He has adopted us to be His spiritual children, Right? We're all adopted by a heavenly Father into the family of God. Ephesians 1, verse 5, Romans 8, 15, Galatians 4, 5, and 6 all talk about our adoption. And all of that is possible only because our Lord Jesus Christ has suffered in our place, the just for the unjust. He shed His blood for the forgiveness of our sins. He's died in our place so that What held us captive has been removed, which is the law. He has been raised from death for our justification and ascended to God's right hand to advocate and intercede for us. What a wonderful salvation that we have and God work in us. To get the picture again, Paul takes this young man, adopts him, circumcises him, and calls him his son in the faith. It's a beautiful picture of something far, far greater. God, our Heavenly Father, has chosen us and adopted us and circumcised our hearts to make us His children in the faith. So Paul risks being accused of double-mindedness and compromised by circumcising Timothy. But But the now circumcised Hellenistic Jew named Timothy will be accepted by the Jews as he preaches the gospel. The hindrance has been removed. 
and the Hellenistic Jewish Timothy will be accepted and listened to by Greeks and Gentiles as he preaches the gospel to them later as a pastor in Ephesus. Paul's decision displays a very important principle for all of us to consider as we make decisions. Paul made that decision, I'm convinced, out of love for others and love for God and love for his own people. He didn't want there to be a hindrance. That's what it says when it means, when it says there, um, he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. He knew that if Timothy went with him into the synagogues as he preached the gospel, that would be a problem for them because they knew he was a Jew. Remember Paul's own words. In Romans 9, the early part of the chapter, I think it's verses 3 and 4, Paul writes of his desire for the Jews to hear the gospel and be saved. In 1 Corinthians 9, 20 to 22, he also says, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by means, all means, I might save some. I got a text from Christian last night saying, you thought about this verse? And I was like, yeah, I just put it in my sermon. So there it was. In love. In love for his people, Paul does all he can to ensure he brings no hindrance to others hearing and believing the gospel. Paul's decisions were driven by his submission to Christ as a slave and a servant and an apostle. Paul's decisions were also driven by his love for God and love for others. Brothers and sisters, let me ask, what guidelines do we have in place to guide us as we make our decisions. We're not like the unbelieving world. We do not have the freedom to decide as the world does, purely from self-centered motives. We are bought with a price. We belong to Christ. He is our Lord, our Master, our Savior, and our God. And those words, like I said a moment ago, carry great meaning and importance. They place us in a submitted Submission of servant to master relationship to Christ. But even more that, we're filled with His Holy Spirit. What must characterize our decision is the Holy Spirit's filling and influence of every thought and action and word and decision. Our decisions must be characterized not by love for self, but by love for God, love for the church, and love for our neighbors. Consider for a moment how much different our lives and our circumstances would be, our ministry would be, how much our decision-making would change if we applied Paul's great 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians to making godly decisions. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, Love is patient. (laughs) Is my decision driven by patience or impatience? I don't want to answer that one, if you don't mind. Love is kind. Will this decision display kindness towards others? He said, love does not envy. Does this decision and what I'm going to decide come from envy or love for others? 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, love does not insist on its own way. Is this decision, in reality, just me pushing for my own way, or is it in love for God and love for others? Is this decision, in reality, 
just pushing my way? Or is it love for God and love for others? If you feel your conscience being pricked, this I'll tell you, it, I would almost rather preach a prosperity gospel message and just call it a day than preach this. Because my conscience personally is getting impaled. Not just pricked. It, honestly, if I could go back and undo half my week and redo it, after sitting and, and working through this yesterday and Friday, I would. Listen, brothers and sisters, the right decision is hardly ever the easy one. Not that I wrestle to know what to do. I must always know what I should do. It's that the right thing is never easy, cheap, quick, or simple. The right thing is usually what will bruise my pride. It will humble me and exalt someone else. It will make much of Christ and little or nothing of me. That's the problem. Too often we decide for what we want. He made those decisions, I'm convinced, in submission to Christ as an apostle, a slave, and a servant of God, as one in love with God and out of love for others. Thirdly, we make decisions in obedience to the Spirit. Let's read again uh, Acts 16, verses 6 to 10. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, he immediately sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding, sorry, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Paul wanted to reach into new areas with the gospel. He spoke later in Romans 15 and verse 20 about not building on another one's foundation that they'd already laid. He wanted to go new areas and preach the gospel. So they went into Phrygia and Galatia. But they were forbidden by the Spirit from speaking the word in Asia. They were not allowed by the Spirit of Jesus to go into Bithynia. Uh, some of you may not have the phrase Spirit of Jesus in your text. If you want, afterward I can explain why. It's just simply a, a title for the Holy Spirit. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. There in Troas, Paul received a vision from the Lord of a man of Macedonia calling them to come over and help them. And the whole group, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and the we almost certainly includes Dr. Luke, who is writing the book, all conclude that God had called them to preach the gospel in Macedonia. Paul had received a vision from God calling him to go to Macedonia to preach the gospel. As soon as this passage comes up, people get all excited and start asking questions like, does God still speak in visions today? What is the place of visions in Christian life? Let me put it to you simply. God revealed himself and his will to his servants, and they obeyed. God's Spirit spoke to them back then in the first century, and God's Holy Spirit still speaks in a far more comprehensive, just as powerful, no less authoritative manner today as he did then. Then as now, the Holy Spirit fills every believer and gives them and us illumination and discernment and understanding to obey His Word. 
I do mean this word, the Bible. In their day, they were given illumination to understand the Old Testament's teaching and speaking of Christ. In our day, we're given illumination to understand the whole Bible as it speaks to us of Christ, of the gospel, the Christian life and future. At that time, probably A.D. 49, much of the New Testament is still to be written. So God in grace gave them spirit-empowered visions. Paul received, by my account, three, possibly four. Acts 9, verse 12, Acts 16, verse 10, Acts 18, verse 9. And you might consider 2 Corinthians 12 a vision that he received. Peter had received at least one of the, the sheep coming down with all the animals inside. God gave them also, at times... Audible, vocal commands from heaven. In our, that's their context. In our context, we have the authoritative, spirit-inspired, inerrant, clear, completed Word of God. That's how God still speaks to us today. The question I want to ask is, why do we go seeking for personal, specific, miraculous events, visions like this one, when we've not yet fully understood all the inspired Word of God that we already have. Scripture is no less authoritative in its printed pages than God is when He speaks in an audible voice at a point in time. They both carry the same authority. Paul and company were forbidden and prevented by the Holy Spirit from going in a certain direction on their missionary journeys, and so they obeyed and did not go. Paul and company received a revelation from God calling them to go over to Macedonia, and so they obeyed and they went where God called them. The Scriptures give us very clear indication to understand what we are forbidden to do and what we are free to do. So we read the Scriptures And we refuse, in submission to God, out of love for God, to do what is forbidden by God in His Word. We refuse idolatry and drunkenness. We refuse sexual immorality, fornication, homosexuality, adultery, all of it. We refuse outbursts of anger and malice and wrath. We refuse lying and deception and deceit. In those moments when we're to decide our next move, knowing and understanding the revealed will of God in Scripture serves as a comprehensive guide to make those decisions. And we do. We refuse what's forbidden and we do what is revealed and approved. We strive for holiness and reject those things that hinder it. We strive for a lifestyle and conduct that pleases God and refuse lifestyles that grieve the Holy Spirit. We strive to make the gospel known. And I could just keep on going, but you get the point. Having said all that, does God still lead us today in certain decisions? And my answer is yes, He does. How do I know? I don't live in Canada anymore, and I'm standing in this pulpit, not a different one, preaching. And I'm absolutely convinced that God led me in both those decisions. So you might be wanting to know, I get asked the question fairly regularly, how do we know when God is leading us or not? How do we know if a desire we have is truly God's leading and not just our wishful thinking? Are we living our lives in submission to Christ as Lord, doing the things that Scripture teaches us to do? That's the first question you want to ask. 
If you're living in sin before God and all of a sudden have a desire to do something, I guarantee you pretty much everything that's not from the Lord. Number two, is your life, is our life being lived out as a child of God and a disciple of Christ, as God's servant and God's slave to the best of our ability? In other words, are we walking close to the Lord, following Him as closely as we possibly can? You have a desire for the Lord and you're living in sin. You're not walking with the Lord. You're not living as a disciple of Christ. That desire is almost certainly not from God. If it's a desire to repent of sin, that is. If it's a desire to read the Word and study it and know it and go back in obedience, that is. That's the call of God on your life. I heard about, I think it was R.C. Sproul told the story that a lady came to him after a conference one day and she said, Oh, Mr. Sproul, I'm absolutely convinced that God is leading me to divorce my husband. And he said, uh, really? Oh, yes, yes. And she, had, she was convinced. And he pointed to the scriptures and made it very clear to her that was not God's light. God does not lead contrary to his word. The Spirit of God. Oh, the Spirit led me to do this, but that's in disobedience to scripture. Yes, but, but, but I had this personal revelation that's great. But here's the problem. The Spirit of God is not inconsistent with Himself. He will not lead you contrary to what His Word clearly says. Is our life being lived out as a child of God and disciple of Christ, as God's servant and slave to the best of our ability? Is what we desire consistent with the gospel and a demonstration of love for God, love for others, and love for the lost? That's a good paradigm to sit down and ask yourself when you're thinking about making a major decision in life. Is it consistent with the gospel? Is it consistent with God's love, love for Him and love for others? Is what we desire forbidden or approved by Scripture in a general sense? And here's one. Have we spoken to the elders, the pastors, the leadership of the church to gain their input, their prayers, and their counsel? We had a major decision to make about selling our house at... 2036 Audlem Place in Sydney, British Columbia, and get on a plane and fly to Australia. What the first thing we did when we really were sure this was God's leading, we didn't just dive into it. What we did, we called the elders over. And they came over and they sat down at the table and they said, they're wondering what in the world this is all about. We had this big, serious meeting. They said, we really feel God's called us to go to Australia and serve the Lord over in Australia. And they were like, wow. And they agreed to pray with us. And then one elder advised that we buy snake-proof boots. You remember that? And so we haven't yet, and so far all is good. Have we spoken to the elders, the pastors, the leadership of a church to gain their input, their prayers, and their counsel? Are we praying and pleading with God? I told the Bible study group, I'll tell you again, um, when we were thinking about applying for the role here, I think even after I'd applied, I used to drive by out there every afternoon on my way home from Rod's church. I had an office in Rod's church at Village Church over there. And I'd sit there and I would plead with God. And my prayer went something like this, Lord, if this is not your will, slam the door so hard that not even I can miss it. I don't want to set foot someplace and be in a place where this is not what you would have me to be. And I prayed that for months. It was November to March before we actually... The whole thing finished up here. God leads. He does. 
He leads through His Word. He's given His Spirit-inspired Word. Stop looking for dramatic, miraculous events as God's leading. Look to the Scriptures. Look to how you're living your life before the Lord and go from there. May God help us. May God help us in the decisions we make. I just want to go back. I've got to emphasize something again. For my sake, more than yours. I've been reminding myself this all week. I'm dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I'm a disciple. Disciple of Jesus Christ. I do not belong to me anymore. I'm not my own. And brother and sister in Christ, neither are you. You are not your own. You, don't, you are not free. I'm sorry to tell you this. I know this goes so against what is the vast bulk of the teaching out there. But you are not free to live your life like everybody else that you meet on the street. The things that the advertisers use to suck you into making decisions and buying things that you don't need to pay more money that you don't have to impress people that you don't really like anyway, it's all gained and, and, and aimed at self. We are not our own. We belong to Jesus Christ. And it comes right down to the decisions we make. Are we going to make them in submission to Christ or will we make them in selfish will. I've made enough of those and have some of the scars left to prove it doesn't pay off or it pays off in terrible backwash. We're not our own brothers and sisters. Paul knew it. Staying there on the dock, watching the boat go away. No longer was the option to go back to Tarsus and go back to his old life. He had to carry on and go forward because he was an apostle by the will of God, not his. And he lived his life in submission. You read through the book of Acts, those later chapters, and look at how he lives. Look at what he does. Get right inside his head, if you can, as you read the lines of Scripture and see the way he responds to people. It's all about him being in submission to God, to do God's will in his life. May that be ours. May that that truth be driven home to your heart and mine. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray, and then Christian will come and lead us in the benediction. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you, O God, for such a salvation. Father, I plead with you for my own heart and for the heart of everybody in this room, every single person who knows and loves the Lord Jesus. Drive home, O God, by the power of the Spirit of God, what it means to be a disciple what it means to live our lives in submission to you. And Father, with this company of witnesses before whom I'm leading in prayer, again, O God, I would say, I am not my own. I belong to you, Lord. Do with this crumbling piece of humanity as you will. Help me, O God, in every step I take, 
every decision I make, Father, as a Christian, a husband, a father, and a pastor, to do it in submission to you. And Father, I call upon the Holy Spirit to work in all of our lives that the reaction would be the same for all of us. That we would put aside self and submit fully to Christ. That we would understand what it means to be a disciple. Father, I plead with you for a work. Father, I know also that there are some in this room who are faced with making difficult decisions about work, about family, about marriage, about all sorts of things, even possibly where to fellowship and what church to be a part of. Father, I plead with you that they would take that simple paradigm in submission to Christ, in love for God and others, and in submission to the Spirit's Word, obedience to it, Father, and use that to help them understand what you would have them to do. Lord God, I am absolutely convinced that this life is not to be lived in the power of the flesh, but the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that this life is to be lived in submission to your word and submission to you. Lord, help us to put aside our Western society's idea that, of freedom. Help us to understand, O oh God, what biblical spiritual freedom really means. A freedom to pick up a cross, a freedom to deny ourselves, and a freedom to follow Christ wherever He would lead. Oh God, I hope, I, I plead with you for a work in all of our lives. And Lord, I ask you these things in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.